question the voices arise and I hear Plastics. Plastics is an SBE sponsored podcast. Good morning. Hey. Oh, good morning to you. Look at this. It's a fine Friday morning, which is great since these episodes are released on a Friday. So we're really, the yeah. listener has no idea what Friday we're coming to you from. We could be doing this live. We'd have no idea. We're not. Well, okay, well yeah. Yeah. We might be a little. If we're, if we're doing awful punchy. we might get this next part a little bit more, more, um, you know, in tune together, but, um, I'm Mercedes Landazuri and I'm Lindsay Neville and with our powers combined, we are Plastics. the voices of resin. And we are coming to you with our, with my first postpartum episode, I believe, unless we recorded one and I was in a sleep deprived stupor. Either way, I've had seven hours of sleep and a cup of coffee, so I am ready for this. <laughs> and my kids are with the nanny, so we're all Congratulations good. Congratulations on your fourth child not named after me. I, I know. Well, you know, when you have four boys in a row, it's very hard to name them Mercedes. I told you, go with Mercedes for middle name, Paul for the first name, so you can call your baby Polymer for short, you know. <laughs> I don't know why you want to do it. As an aside, my husband did actually want to name our baby Holly. Oh, Ethelene, just Ethelene. And I was like, no, no, it's not on the table. It's not an option. I can't be that committed to the bit. <laughs> so, oh so, and thankfully, we never had a girl. So this was not a uh, not up for debate. <laughs> um, well, so back, back, to, back to who we are and what we do. Um, so this is the Plastics Podcast. Um, it's released the first Friday of uh, every month where we get your um, your podcasts. And um, we created this podcast, what, four or five years ago? Yeah. Like first uh, kid, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lindsay and I met um, on a committee meeting for Society of Plastics Engineers, inspiring plastics uh, plastics professionals. <laughs> and plastics. <laughs> um, and uh, we wanted to create, um, you know, a more public voice uh, for uh, other demographics in the industry, um, and uh, and also just to to learn more from uh, everyone in the industry and industry adjacent. So we have mm-hmm. people from all points in their career, all walks of life, um, several continents, a few continents. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're we're checking off continents. No one from Antarctica yet. We'll work on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, thanks. Thanks for listening. Um, and today we have a wonderful guest on. I'm very, very excited um, to introduce Kate Davenport, who is the co-president at Eureka Recycling. Kate, thanks so much for joining us on the pod today. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so, Kate, um, I know Mercedes got to spend some time with you um, at a recent event, and I was not allowed because I was having said I was pregnant with said baby. Um, uh, so can you, you know, for myself and for our listeners, just give us a little bit about your background, a little bit about uh, Eureka and let us know what's going on. Yeah, sure. Um, so I have been doing sustainability work for 20, 20 plus years, I think. I think now I'm old enough. I don't even know the exact math anymore. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and so, um, I, you know, my journey on this actually started right after graduating from college. I was really interested in international relations, and I was at the UN World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg. This was in 2002. Um, and um, I was at an event, and there was a... Um, display there from the IUCN, which is a coalition of scientists across the world that work on sustainability. And um, they had a bunch of exhibits around entrepreneurs in Southern and um, Eastern Africa that were um, starting businesses that both generated income and also did something around natural resource management or sustainability. Um, and there was an entrepreneur named Peter that was harvesting um, invasive species out of the river and turning it into paper. And it was in that moment that I was like, huh, you can both address environmental issues and generate income at the time. You know, because I think for so long, yeah. um, environmental protection has been pitted against economic development. Um, and so that honestly, uh, I never actually got to meet Peter, but that actually kind of started off my journey. Um, and I started working with a very small um, non-governmental organization doing environmental microenterprise development in Tanzania. So working with very low income populations on how to generate income and that um, in a way that's sustainable. Um, and that got me really interested in the waste issue. Um, I interacted with a lot of farmers that were taking food waste and composting it and then using that as soil amendments for their agricultural for agricultural purposes. And it was like, wow, we produce a lot of waste in the United States and just throw it away. So that that concept of waste really I gravitated towards, and I think a lot of the rest of the world, particularly that's lower income, sees waste as a resource, not just something that goes away. Um, and so that got me really interested in waste issues. Um, and I was like, you know, I need to try to figure out how to address this issue in my own backyard, um, not in other people's communities. And so um, I um, helped start the first um, compost collections business in Washington, D.C. in the mid 2000s. So at this point, like food waste composting was really not something that was happening. Um, and so um, I found a guy that had bought a truck and was like picking food waste up from Whole Foods and the Four Seasons and and restaurants. Um, and so really got into the issue. And I think once you get into waste, it's pretty hard to get out of it. Um, <laughs> it becomes a pretty fascinating um, part of our society that nobody really talks about um, until like the last five years. So um, that was kind of the start of my my journey there. Um, so you said... Sir, you said that you you developed the, the very first compost collection program in Washington. Yeah. You're yeah. a celebrity. You're, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about yeah. that. <laughs> Listen, it's going on our podcast, celebrity approved. I, I, I wasn't... <laughs> I wasn't the, um, there's actually the um, person that started it, his name is Walker Lund. He started it and I joined him probably a couple months later. But yeah, we were in our mid twenties and wow. had a truck driving around in the middle of the night, picking up food waste. I learned a lot 
Um, I was stopped by the Secret Service at one point. Um, oh. Picking up at the World Bank, which is near the White House. And they were like, who is this young woman driving this dump truck around full of food waste? <laughs> You're like, um, don't worry about it. <laughs> I was like, I, I think I'm fine. You want to get in? They were like, no, we're fine. Are they testing um, for like methane levels? Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that was very early on when people were starting to think about the climate impact of food waste. You know, mm-hmm. when you when food waste goes into the landfill, it produces methane. Um, and that is actually a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon. And so people were starting to think about how do we compost this food waste to address climate change, but also like compost can, you know, food waste can be turned into compost and that has value from an um, agricultural perspective. So, um yeah, I started in, in the food waste side of things, um, learned a lot, of, made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> learned a lot about collections in the waste industry. Um, and then I fell in love and moved to Minnesota in the middle of winter. <laughs> um, that is some big love there. <laughs> yeah, that was some big love. <laughs> the warmest Never... parts often take us to the coldest places. Right. Oh, exactly. there you go. <laughs> um, and I uh, was introduced uh, found out about this organization, Eureka Recycling, and I was like, I want to work there. And so was was lucky enough to start working there about 12 years ago now um, and started in the business development side of things and then took over as co-president uh, about seven years ago. Um, so yeah, that's kind of been been the journey. So um, I've been in this for a long, a long time. Mm-hmm. So, so you said that um, that this gentleman, uh, Peter, what was his last name? Did you mention in your house? Oh, I can't remember his last name. I just remember but Peter. We'll Peter. call him Peter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, that you you re- recognize that then from him that um, that you could you know do this, but then also make money at it. And yet, your re- recycling is a, a nonprofit, yeah. and only, one of only four nonprofit uh, MRFs in the United States. Can you speak yeah. to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so Eureka has been around for about, um, it's been a little over 20 years. Um, we actually came out of a community-based organization that was part of starting the recycling program in the city of St. Paul in the 80s. And um, and so Eureka spun out of that to actually kind of take on the operations in 2001. Um, and at the time, the the reason for the nonprofit status was, you know, recycling really started as a as community a community based thing, right? Communities coming together and saying, why are we throwing aluminum cans and paper in the trash? Um, and then that led to um, that grew those grassroots efforts led to cities starting to offer recycling as a city service kind of in the 80s and 90s. And then you started to see the large waste companies get into recycling. Um, and so at that point in time, there it felt like there was really a need for a mission-based organization to be doing recycling from a mission perspective, not purely from a profit perspective. Um, and so that was kind of why Eureka has uh, started as a not-for-profit. And I'll, I'll say that, you know, being a nonprofit doesn't mean we um, don't run a business. It just means we don't have shareholders. And so our proceeds go back into our mission, into our education work, our policy work, and our adv- advocacy work. Um, so a little bit about how we're structured. Um, we have two, what we would call social enterprises. One is a recycling collections business. So we contract primarily with municipalities um, to pick up the recycling every week that residents put out in their carts. So we got, you know, 
30 trucks and 40 drivers out every week picking up recycling. Um, primarily, again, our customer is the municipality in that sense. They contract with us to provide that service. Um, and then we have a material recovery facility or MRF. So I'm sure we'll talk about the MRF a little bit more. So that's where all that material gets put in the cart. It comes to the MRF and we sort it back into its original packaging category. So cardboard and glass and aluminum and different types of plastic um, and sell those to manufacturers that will turn it into new product. Um, and so um, we also contract the municipalities to provide that service as well as other haulers in the marketplace. Um, so we run those as businesses. If you looked at our books, it would look very much like a for-profit. Those are not, we're not subsidizing those with grants, for example. Um, we're competing in the marketplace. And that's on purpose, right? Our mission is to demonstrate that waste is preventable. Um, and so we want to try to show that in how we do our business. Um, and so we need to be operating in the existing market environment to talk about what's working and what's not working and what we need to do to change it. Um, and so we leverage our experience in those operations um, to advocate for policy change, um, to push brands for better practices, um, to educate the community um, and different stakeholders on what needs to happen. Because recycling at the end of the day um, we're, why are we doing recycling, right? The goal is not actually recycling. The goal is to decrease natural resource extraction, um, to cut down less trees and to extract less oil from the ground to make plastics, for example, or mining bauxite to make aluminum. Um, and there are climate change benefits to that. There's um, human health benefits to that. There are pollution benefits to that. So we're really trying to utilize our understanding of what's happening in terms of recycling um, to advocate to have for it to have further benefit to have to increase those benefits for example and also to be real where it isn't the solution um so i'm sure we'll talk about that more <laughs> i i feel like this conversation can really spiral in a whole lot of uh directions and i'm not sure we will fit everything we yeah, want yeah. into um <laughs> Oh, one of the things you mentioned, um, you know, the first part of Eureka is, you know, kind of doing the recycling collections for the municipalities. Um, I, you know, I'm coming at this from I'm not in necessarily the sustainability space um, like Mercedes is, but um, obviously I'm team recycle here. Um, but one of the things I always hear is kind of the not complete outsider, but semi-outsider is that municipalities are very difficult to kind of fit um, recycling or collections into. Do you find that that's a problem and do you have to kind of work within their structure or do they you kind of make them come to your um, to your table, I guess? It's a it's a dance. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a dance. You know, I mean, the, the history of waste is actually important to understand in terms of where we are right now. Right. So the if you look across the United States, it's municipalities. It's the, I think there's like 30,000 municipalities. I, sure. I might be wrong. About that, <laughs> but, um, that across the United States, and that's who really manages waste. Um, and the history of that is at the turn of the 20th century, um, 
waste became a sanitation issue. So think about New York City and horses everywhere. And what are you going to do with the manure, et cetera? And so, and there were cholera outbreaks. So municipalities took on waste management from a sanitation perspective. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of the history of why municipalities hold that responsibility for managing waste. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's a service that they're providing to residents, to the tax, to the local taxpayer, right? And so um, they're, you know, so they're not necessarily doing it from a sustainability perspective. Again, they're doing it from a service and a sanitation perspective as their primary objective. Now, over the last 20 years, you've seen municipalities integrate their own sustainability goals. I mean, I think cities are the front line in a lot of ways for addressing climate change, for example. Um, but again, primarily, they want that stuff picked up every week and off the streets at the end of the day. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, so you're always trying to kind of find what's the um, mutually beneficial way to approach something. You know, I think one of the things I might be going on a tangent here, but this is, love it. this is relevant. <laughs> um, so, I mean, as you all know, the issue of plastics pollution um, and the role of recycling and addressing that has really exploded in the public discourse in like the last five years. And there were kind of two things that we saw happen that resulted in why that's kind of exploded. Um, and one was, you know, about five, six years ago, we just started seeing more press, National Geographic articles, et cetera, about plastics pollution in the ocean, right? The big, right. the big gyre in the Pacific or the pictures of the turtle with the, you know, bottle in its stomach or whatever. That turtle haunts us. So there just was more attention to um, the plastics issue. And thus that brought up like, well, how do we deal with this? Who's responsible for addressing this issue? What's the role of recycling? Many of us have been recycling for decades and being like, well, is this not working? Why is the plastic still ending up in the ocean? Um, and at the same time as that, um, there was a kind of geopolitical thing that happened where China announced a policy called National Sword in about 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in time, about 30 to 40 percent of the recycling collected in the United States was going through material recovery facilities and then being shipped to China to markets to be turned into new product. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of different reasons for that. Um, this was happening particularly on the West Coast. So if you think about it, you had shipping containers coming over with our iPhones and all the things that we buy manufactured in China, and they were empty going back. So it was cheaper to ship recycling in those empty shipping containers going back than, say, into the middle of the United States, where a lot of the recycling recyclers are. Um, also, manu- you know, China was where most of the manufacturing was happening in the world. So that's where the demand was for old cardboard to make new cardboard boxes, for example. Um and China was hungry for it. What ended up happening was there was a lot of recycling being sent to China that was pretty dirty and contaminated. And so China basically said, we're not taking this anymore. <laughs> we're done. And they <laughs> shut the doors overnight. Um, and so particularly on the West Coast, there was just nowhere for recycling to go. There was a lot of um, news and press around, you know, piles of recycling not you know, going to the landfill. And so again, brought up this question of what's happening to recycling. Is it really a solution? And one of the things that was revealed is kind of the curtain was pulled back was um, there were a lot of plastics going to China that were honestly being burned. Um, Hmm. 
And what had happened over kind of 20 years was municipalities were incentivized to add as much material as possible to their recycling program, right? That makes all of us here feel good. The more stuff we can throw in there, we feel right. good. They feel like they're providing a good service to their residents, et cetera. Um, and China was willing to take all of that plastic and pull out the good stuff when they were burning the rest. This was particularly true for plastics three through seven. Um, I'm assuming I can use some of the resin code numbers oh, yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> if not, check out our show notes. <laughs> yeah. So there were there are fairly good domestic markets for number one and number two, but all that other stuff there really wasn't. And the reality was um, they were pulling out the number fives, the polypropylene, and the rest was getting burned. And so it was this moment that was like, that's not really recycling. Just because we can send it somewhere to somebody, mm -hmm. if it's not actually being turned into new product, that's not achieving the goals of recycling, right? Right. Um, but municipalities had been incentivized to get service providers that would accept all plastic. They were winning contracts because they could accept all plastics. They had places to send it in China. And then this was kind of the like, it blew up the moment of truth, what's really happening here. So I think that's a good example too, where like municipalities aren't doing the due diligence necessarily on what's really happening. They're trusting the market. Um, and the market was saying this is getting recycled. So I think that was an example of kind of... Um, where we didn't have the right checks and balances in the system to, to make sure we were doing recycling for the reason that we all put stuff in the cart every week. Right. And I think that this also led to a lot of the, the skepticism now that we are facing yep. with recycling, right? Lindsay and I always text each other when we find something on social media that we're trying, we're trying not to spiral out of control and anger. I, I don't want to comment on those posts, but my <laughs> inner voice tells me to comment. <laughs> You know what? So what what um, what's your go to fun fact when you meet a recycling skeptic that that things? Oh, it doesn't matter that what I put in the bin, like none of it's getting recycled anyway. Or, all yeah. Lot. Or they're quoting that new like nine percent of plastic gets recycled or whatever that. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> I stopped telling people in the rest of my life that I work in recycling because then I'm inevitably really? like talking about it at a soccer game. And I'm like, I just want to watch my kid. <laughs> all, all I want to do is talk about recycling. <laughs> I mean, I do, but sometimes I just want to watch my kid play soccer. Yeah, fair. That, <laughs> is, that is a go button. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, I cannot tell you how many people find out I'm in recycling and they say, I need you to settle a dispute in my household between me and my husband. Do I need to wash out the peanut butter jar it's like always the question that everybody asks that that's huh. like uh, my husband and I always have that debate and I'm like listen I talk to people who know this and he's like yeah but <laughs> like my wife still questions me and I'm like I literally run a recycling <laughs> oh wow oh that's just the a disrespect <laughs> come on um yeah, I think there's been a lot of distrust in it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot that we need to do as an industry to rebuild that trust. You know, that 9% number is interesting. That 9% number is true about all plastics that's been created. What comes through a recycling program, like when we think of a recycling program, your municipal mm -hmm. recycling program, is plastics packaging, which is only a portion of all the plastics produced in the world, right? right? And so... Um, I think that's where I go is to try to kind of pull it apart. It's hard though, and it's complicated and it's nuanced. And we live in a society that's all about the quick, you know, 
the quick news media hit. So um, I think we're still trying to figure out how we get people's attention on the complexity of this. You know, so if you look at plastic packaging that goes in your bin, um, you know, most of that does actually get recycled. Um, so there are layers to that, right? So first off... Well, well if they are layers, they might not be recycled. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> little, little recycling, multi-layer joke. I was going to say, wow. Oh, We're really going for the joke. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. So it's like the 9% is, you know, what you put in your bin is only a portion of what that 9% is counting. That's counting like, you know, car medical parts and, yeah. and medical waste and you know, industrial stuff. I mean, plastics is everywhere, you know, in so many parts of our life. And then from that, if you look at just plastics packaging, it's true that we only collect about 20 to 30% of the plastic packaging that's out there. It's not getting in the cart, um, which is different than how much of what's in the cart actually gets recycled. Does that make, and I think once you start digging in, it gets really complicated and hard to keep people's attention. Um, And it's, you know, it's true. There were some recyclers that weren't recycling the plastic that they were getting. Um, But, you know, the majority of PET and high density polyethylene, which is the majority of the plastics that the recycling, you know, residential recycling does get recycled and recycled by domestic markets. But, you know, that's like multiple layers from the 9%. But we try to do a lot of work with different stakeholders to try to help them understand the the layers there. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about um, the, uh, because of the, at the end of the day, like you said, it's still a business. You still, you're bringing in this material and that comes at a cost to, to your company, right? But you also then have to turn around and sell it. So can you talk about um, navigating that and and how how to identify different markets to sell those materials into, right? My first love in plastics was polystyrene, right? And I thought it was me. Okay. Well, I feel <laughs> like maybe a year after I fell in love okay. with polystyrene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, and it, and it broke my heart trying to figure out even, you know, internally, yeah. like our, our small amount of, of polystyrene waste um, at the company, how to get that recycled. And there really wasn't a market for it. So even though some of these materials are technically recyclable, most of the materials you do take in are recyclable, but you don't have markets for all of them to sell into. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, you know, I mean, I think what's interesting about recycling is tech to your point mercedes like technically anything can be recycled right if you can get it all sorted into that particular type of polymer but there has to be a market for it and the economics for collecting and sorting it all have to line up um and those are a lot of complicated things that have to come together so you know yeah we're selling um you know about 13 different global commodities what we're selling is really a global are different global commodities right and so we have to have manufacturers that want to buy them and turn them into new products so we need paper mills that want to buy cardboard to turn it into cardboard for example um so we need markets for the plastic that we um collect and sort and um and we need sustained markets right you know i mean i think we saw this with polystyrene like um, we've been very vocal about never accepting polystyrene. There's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the primary ones is like there aren't stable markets for that material, right? And like the one little pop-up, we're going to take it and turn it into picture frames. Like that's not a sustainable market. <laughs> and does that market 
pay us what it costs to sort that material. And polystyrene is challenging too, because it breaks apart and basically just like goes everywhere. Um, so it's very hard to aggregate that material into, into one stream. Um, so yeah, you need consistent markets. And so, you know, when we um, look at adding material, we want to know that there are stable markets out there and the pricing has to be such that it covers our operating costs and the capital investments that we need to make to collect and sort that material. And there's often a disconnect. And I that is the issue right now with flex film packaging. And I, I think, you know, even to that point, a lot of people designing, you know, new products or, you know, aren't educated on you know, what materials can be recycled or how they could be using PCR or anything like yep. that. Cause I, I spoke with a very, honestly, lovely gentleman. Um, we'll all know what that means. Uh, who was uh, designing some products uh, in the, like the beauty industry. And he was telling me how the material he was using was not recyclable. And so he didn't have to worry about it. And I was like, Ah, I'm like everything you're saying is wrong from top to bottom. Like you could be designing something that's re using recycled material, or you could be using material that is like you are using material that's recyclable again, whether the market matches that or whatever, that's a different issue. But you know, he had, he had no idea. And he also told yeah. me I was very wrong, but um, I believe I did send a heated email to Mercedes after uh, that conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think honestly, that gets down. We, we see that too. Um, and, you know, we, we do tours for packaging designers to help them understand the end of life, you know, that's often never part of the curriculum <laughs> or it's not in the incentives for them right. when they're designing packaging. Um, it's not part of the equation. You know, I think this gets down to fundamentally why we think there needs to be public policy. Like this is an urgent issue that we need to figure out and we need public policy to help set the guardrails and the rules of the game because they're honestly not enough incentives in the market um, to necessarily design for recycling at the pace that we need to do that to address this problem. Mm -hmm. And so we really need policy to do that. And that's why we're a very strong supporter of extended producer responsibility, right? We've now seen that pass in four states in the US. And it's that, you know, going back to what I was talking about before, historically it's been municipalities that have been responsible for packaging waste from the perspective of sanitation and keeping streets clean. That's who's paid for recycling. We need to shift that responsibility to the people that produce it so that they understand from the design stage all the way down um, what, what they need to do from a design perspective to make recycling work. So we need to shift that responsibility away from the municipality towards the producer. Yeah, when what, um, you know, we're talking about um, extended producer recyclability and also, you know, what, how have, have the, I, I completely agree with you on policy. You know, we, we definitely need better. I always say, um, hashtag bills, not bans. Uh, I think I mentioned that at the conference, right? But we have seen these brands make these increasing commitments to use PCR. How has that impacted you? Do you think it's, do you think that that's an effective part of the strategy? Um, yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally voluntary commitments will not get us there. 
that we do need public policy. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've been engaged with the U.S. Plastics Pact and um, we sit in many in industry circles that those commitments, um, I think, have created awareness around where the opportunities and challenges are um, and started the conversation. So, you know, five, six years ago, most of the brands were firm opposers to extended producer responsibility or recycled content mandates. I think because of their voluntary commitments, they've been begun to understand how the system works, what the challenges are, and recognize, oh, we do need policy to kind of reset all of this to get us to these goals. Um, I think it's, you know, I think what's been really interesting is I'm getting more calls from procurement departments now than I am from the sustainability folks, which to me is actually success, right? Because at the end of the day, it's the procurement folks that make the daily decisions right. around are we using recycled content or not? Yeah. And they're um, being dictated to kind of by the engineers right. who are hopefully right. yep. starting and to think in this line. They're incentivized. You know, I think re and the reality of where we are and right now is a perfect moment um, <laughs> to kind of show what's not working, but um, re recycled plastic is competing with virgin plastic, right? So if you look at the price of um, recycled content plastic, it's highly volatile and it basically follows what the price of um, oil and natural gas says, right? Because that's where virgin plastics come from. Um, and so procurement folks, if the price of, you know, virgin PET or virgin polyethylene drops because of what's happening in terms of the natural gas or, or oil markets, um, then that's going to put downward pressure on recycled commodity fees. So, I mean, PET is a great example, right? Like this time last year, we were, you know, 30, 40 cents a pound. Right now I'm getting a penny a pound. Whoa. I mean, wow. If you look at the commodity market indexes, that's what you're seeing. I mean, just falling off the cliff. And if you ask kind of what's going on, that there's been dumping of virgin material from European and Middle Eastern markets on the U.S. market. And if you're a procurement officer and your charge is to get the cheapest input, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. So unless there's policy like a recycled content mandate or something that levels the playing field for everybody, it's pretty hard to get a corporation to leave, you know, to pay that much more for recycled content. So that kind of massive commodity swings um, is, is what makes recycling really challenging. Um, and that's, again, I think where we need policy to kind of change, change the incentives in the system. But yeah, Mercedes, you had that reaction, right? That's a huge swing in value. I, I remember, you know, when we met and you were giving the tour, I think you had said like, the year before that, it was at nine cents and that felt low. And now you're saying a penny. That's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I would have a lot of difficulty sleeping at night. Yeah. yeah. I mean, way, how do you run a business without that stability. The way that we try to, to kind of stabilize that is we have process, we have revenue share agreements with our customers. 
So we set a processing fee, right? Because mm-hmm. it's expensive to run a MRF. You've got people and a lot of capital right. investment. And obviously that cost doesn't change on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so we set a processing fee. And if the value of the material that we're selling is above that processing fee, we share that revenue with our customers. And if it's below, then they have to make up the difference. And that's part of how we stabilize those commodity swings. Um, but that's still challenging, right? Because they only have a certain tolerance for what their processing fee will will be. So again, this goes back to um, extended producer responsibility and having those that make the packaging be responsible for the system in a different way. Um, so yeah, but it it is it's it's a hard business to run with that kind of com- those kind of commodity swings. Um, the other the other thing that we're seeing, you know. Natural high density polyethylene. We talked about this Mercedes when you right. were here. Um, was we really started to see some stabilization with that material? Um, actually, it was had started to become more valuable than aluminum, which we had never seen before. And I would attribute that to the commitments that brands were making. Um, I'm you know natural high density polyethylene. So like your milk jugs is some of the easiest material to recycle because it's clear. And so, you know, there's not as much processing that you need to do with that. And you have more ability to take that and put it into a food grade application, for example. So that was kind of the material we saw a lot of folks going after to meet their recycled content commitments. And there were a lot of people saying, you know, wow, this is awesome. It started to stabilize. We think that it's now separated. Its price is kind of separated from Virgin. This is this is really exciting. Um, and then I'd say the last few months, um, we've started to see that price decrease significantly. And what we're hearing is because there's been a lot of wide-spec polyethylene pellets dumped on the market. And so again, the procurement folks, at the end of the day, what are, you know, Right. Price is what their incentive is. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm not blaming the procurement folks. Again, it's a system. We can. This, okay. is, a, this is an aggressive podcast. We can, we can oh. blame the procurement folks. But sorry, everyone like, in procurement. Thanks, service lab people, certainly. Well, we will all blame procurement. We'll blame everyone. <laughs> but I think there's some exciting moments too, right? Like, you know, um, some of the executives, you know, the C-suite at Coke, some of their executive pay is now tied to meeting that recycle content commitment, right? So we're seeing some, we're seeing some shifts that may filter down to the procurement team in terms of how they think about what to balance when they're purchasing material. Um, so there's a lot of challenges in the system, but I think there's, this is a really, we've never seen this kind of momentum in terms of all the stakeholders starting to come to the table to try to figure this out. You know, Coke just announced a supply agreement with um, Republic, which is one of the large, one of the largest waste and recycling companies in the country. Um, and that's something a recycler has been saying for a long time. We need long-term supply agreements, Right. you know, with bottlers and other folks to help stabilize the price. And we're starting to see that. And that's exciting. That's what, uh, what uh, anecdotally, maybe what, what are some of your uh, least favorite materials to bring in? Oh, actually, or, or livestock. 
<laughs> yes, uh, Mercedes knows this from the tour. Um, yeah, we we get all kinds of interesting stuff. We've got live chickens and um, all, all kinds mm-hmm. of things. I'm sorry. How are we recycling live chickens? <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to think about it at the end of the day, like everybody in the metropolitan area has a cart and... Um, <laughs> You know, our the cities we work with and us have invested a lot in education, but sometimes you get a live chicken. That's <laughs> um, fair. <laughs> um, you know, right now one of the biggest challenges for recycling facilities is lithium batteries. So mm-hmm. we've seen lithium batteries kind of explode in our stream. That's the greeting card that sings to you. That's a lithium battery in that greeting card, right? Mm-hmm. All our phones, power tools, etc. And Probably so vape pens too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mm. vape pens, everything. And so um, we've done a lot of education around not putting batteries in your recycling cart. um, And they still get in there. I mean, we did bus ads with our cities last year. We've done billboards. We've done mailers. Um, But again, you're you're educating an entire populace. So... um, I feel like you need it stamped right on like the recycling cart. It is. And even then, even then, there's a big battery with an X through it. Um, And even then we get it. And lithium batteries, when they come into, I'm I'm sure you've, you know, we've seen this across the country in lots of industries. Um, If there's any pressure on those lithium batteries, they explode and cause fires. And so that's a huge issue that's facing the recycling industry. So you're hearing a lot of recyclers call for, the battery manufacturers needing more responsibility in terms of the end of life of their product because it's causing havoc for us. Um, I'd say the other material that we really are challenged by are plastic bags and flexible packaging. Um, And there's a lot of discussion, I'm sure you all know, about flex and film because brands have chosen to move towards that material for a variety of reasons. It's lightweight, there's, you know, um, shelf stability benefits, et cetera. Um, But that material, you know, plastic bags wrap around the shafts of our equipment. We have to shut down two hours a day to cut those plastic bags off, for example, Um, flexible packaging, the Amazon mailer or the granola pouch, right? That's going to flatten and sort in with our paper Um, because it's going to act like it's two-dimensional, and now it's contaminated the paper. Um, And so, you know, we did a study recently for the Recycling Partnership on what does it cost us just to pull that flex and film material out of our stream, just the incidental stuff. We don't even, we don't want it. We don't, we educate against it, but we still get it. Um, You know, what does it cost to get it out? Cost us a dollar a pound. If you look at recyclingmarkets.net, the value that you would get paid for MRF film and flex is a penny. So there's a really big disconnect yeah. between what it actually will cost to get that material out and what the value is in the marketplace. Um, and so, you know, we have a, we have a long way to go. And, and, and that's where we have to ask the questions like, yes, there may be these benefits to that packaging, but there's this cost and impact on the end, on the, on the end of life. And we need to talk about that and how we think about that. Um, I think one of my biggest frustrations right now is we're hearing from a lot of folks in the industry, well, there's technology out there to address the issue. Mm. You're like, there may be technology out there to address the issue, but how much does that technology cost? And there's the market willing to pay what the capital investment and operating costs are to utilize that technology. And I think that's where there's a lot of disconnect right now. Yeah, I, I, 
can see that. And I mean, you can, <laughs> the question kind of gets pushed back on the manufacturers as well. Like, well, why don't you have the technology to move to a different material or, you know, design your product to make the other technology that's already there work yeah. instead of the other way around. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of, it's a, you know, I think it's a fascinating conversation, right? Like over the last a hundred years, um, we've developed this very fast paced consumer society with a lot of benefits, right? I mean, I know you guys, you guys are the plastic chicks, right? Like there's a lot of benefit to plastic. Um, but the end of life is a real issue. And how we get that plastic and the impacts to frontline communities is an issue. And so we got to talk about all of those trade-offs. And so it's a complicated conversation. Well, Kate, we're almost out of time today. Um, But what I want to really give you a voice to, to, you know, a lot of our listeners who are um, plastics engineers or... um, work with plastics engineers what is your what is your ask of us what do we do um i think number one like go visit a murph go actually see what the process is and what it takes go visit plastic reclaimers and understand what their challenges are, right? Because the MRF is just sorting it back into PET and HTPE. And then there's the reclaimer that's flaking that and pelletizing that. Go visit and understand what the challenges are. Um, you know, contact your local your local MRF. We'll give you a tour. Um, you know, Eureka Recycling has a, a virtual tour on our website that people can watch. Fun. Um, so I, I think that's, that's number one. Um, and start having those conversations about the trade-offs, right? I mean, I think, again, there's there are a lot of benefits from a packaging perspective of multi-layer flex packaging, um, but there are real challenges in recycling it. And so um, digging, I, I want to stop seeing people pointing fingers at each other, right? The plastic engineers need to figure this out. The recyclers need to figure this out, right? Like, we got to figure this out together. Um, it's just the Spider-Man meme right now. We're all... Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, <laughs> who who should figure this out? We have to all figure it out together. Um, so yeah, go go visit a Murph, go visit a plastics reclaimer. Um, like you know, that. I think I think one of the biggest, I think one of the interesting questions we're going to be continued to look at is, um, it, it's this frame that we often talk about, which is um, can we versus should we. Right. So like, I think green PET is a great example of this, right? Like green P we can sort green PET goes in with our PET bales. We can send it to the, the plastics reclaimer. They recycle that into bale strapping. That's not, which is then never going to get recycled again. Right. There's no circularity around green PET. So could we look at getting green PET back into green bottles? What's the cost of that? versus just getting rid of the green, right? Coke Coke changed the Sprite bottle to be clear. Um, so I think that's an interesting example of like, where do we do design changes and where can't we because of the, you know, the properties of the packaging and then what's the cost, right? Like we need to wrestle that out. Um, yeah, and, and or like what new markets can we identify or can we help build to... So that so that it is a more sustainable product and and does get recycled again and again. You know? 
Yeah, I think the other thing I'd really love for people to take away, and we've done a lot of um, research and work around this, there's a lot of um, talk about advanced recycling or chemical recycling kind of being the answer. Um, and as we've dug into that issue um, and done our due diligence around it, like there's no chemical, there are a lot of different types of chemical recycling technologies, mm -hmm. right? Like paralysis is different than gasification. That's different than methanolysis. Um, and none of those none of those chemical recycling technologies can just take a bale of plastic waste. They all want assorted feedstock, right? The paralysis folks want polyethylene. They don't want PVC in there. They don't want polystyrene in there. They don't want PET because of its yeah. oxygen levels. So it still requires some level of sortation. And then it gets down to the economics. What's the cost of sorting to that technology? Is the market willing to pay for it? So that'd be the other thing is that like, we really need to move away from this kind of like chemical recycling is going to solve this problem for Just us. plug your ears. Chemical recycling will do it. It's fine. Yeah, there's been a little bit of like, it's just going to solve the problem. Um, it could be part of the solution, but right. again, uh, what are the costs associated with that? Where does it make sense? Where does it not make sense? And there's a lot of concern from frontline communities and the environmental community about um, the energy uses use for chemical recycling, the, the um, chemicals and toxicity created as a result of some of those processes, we need to talk about that right. um, as, a, as opposed to like this technology is <laughs> just going to solve it all. I mean, so. my personal favorite is plugging my ears, but yeah. Uh... yeah. So that'd be my other one is like engage in the nuanced conversation around chemical recycling as opposed to just Hoping that's gonna solve it for. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Kate Davenport, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. Yeah. Uh, really appreciated it. I think it's gonna be really meaningful. It it really changed my view on the industry visiting your facility um, and gave me a much deeper understanding. So I I I I, I um, just wildly second your your recommendation for. Um, yeah. yeah, and we do we do do virtual tours for groups. So if they're if they're packaging engineers that are want to do a, you know, they can't come to the Twin Cities, but they want to do a virtual tour and really dig into the issue. Um, please go to our website and we're happy to say I'm 100%. When I get back to work and possibly remember, I'm going to suggest it to yeah. our, yeah. our team. Yeah. And your website for all of our listeners? Is eurekarecycling.org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kate. All right. Thank and you On all. a personal note, too, I want to say just because of my background and because of my family, I want to, uh, when I was at, touring your facility and I'd asked you about it, um, you guys give uh, ESL lessons for your oh. employees, English as a second language, and just want to say thank you so much for doing that. Um, it's It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I think that's in addition to yeah, no, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Mercedes. You know, one of the things we've been committed to for the last 20 years is there are people that are a part of this industry. There are people that drive the trucks and sort the recycling and recycling can't be done on the backs of them. We've done that too many times mm -hmm. in our, in this economy. And so, yeah, how do we make these um, livable paying jobs with benefits? And um, so... Um, you know, we've really tried to make sure that our our staff are va are valued in the process. Because if we recycle but don't value the people that do it, doesn't matter. You just added the hard eye emoji to the end of this yeah. conversation. So. <laughs> right, let's let's stop the video. I'm about to cry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kate. All right. Thanks, y'all.
Hey, thanks so much for listening to Plastics. New episodes appear on the first Friday of every month. So either follow or subscribe to get those new episodes ASAP. Plastics, the Voices of Resin is a plastics podcast sponsored by SPE, inspiring plastics professionals. If you want to find out more about SPE, please visit for, like the number, SPE.org. Oh, plastics.